Uh, Y'all turn with me to Mark chapter 14, verse 32. Mark 14, verse 32, and I'm glad we had some really joyous songs because we're going to read a very dark uh, story in Scripture today. There is victory at the end of it, but you just need to know this is a dark story. This is a story of sorrow. This is a story of anguish, and it's going to relate to where some of you are right now and relate to where all of us will be at some point. Um, If you read ancient literature or you're familiar with history, you know there are a lot of stories of martyrdom down through history, stories of men and women who've been killed for a cause and whose death um, later spoke of their courage, of their strength, of the, of the passion of their convictions. And they, these stories are of different causes, different, uh, different kinds of deaths, different uh, circumstances, but they all have one thing in common. They all point to the courage of the martyr. Um, I'll, I'll give you an example, kind of a well-known example. In 399 BC, Socrates, the great philosopher, was sentenced to die by the city council of Athens. And his sentence was to drink a cup of poison hemlock, or I guess there's only one kind of hemlock, and that's the poison kind. Um, and Plato, his student, and also, of course, a well-known philosopher, wrote of it years later and, and described it as a time when he was the calmest person in the, in the room, Socrates was, that he calmly drank his potion, that he, uh, he told all of his students who were gathered around him crying that they needed to stop crying. He'd already sent all the women away because he didn't want to hear crying, and now they were crying and upsetting him, and uh, he calmed them down, and he told one of his students, we owe, we owe a rooster to so-and-so. Why don't you go ahead and pay him after I'm dead? And then he laid down on his little bench and stopped breathing, just as calm as can be. I say that because we're going to read tonight of Jesus facing his death. We're not going to get to the cross tonight, but we're going to, we're going to look at those moments right before when Jesus knows what's coming, and you're going to notice the contrast. Unlike Socrates, unlike so many other martyrs, Jesus doesn't face his end with stoicism and calmness, but he faces it with, with grief and tears and anguish and sweat and sorrow and prayers to God for deliverance. And you might wonder, well, what's the difference? Why did Jesus not act like those others? And I think there are three things to remember. Number one, the Bible is a very honest book. It doesn't whitewash anything. And I'm not calling Plato a liar, but I am saying he had an agenda. He says in there that in his mind, Socrates was the the wisest and the most upright and the best of men, and he wants to prove that. And so there's probably a little whitewashing going on in the story. Whereas in Scripture, there's no whitewashing ever. We see all the characters of Scripture and all of their flaws. And even Jesus, who was flawless in terms of sin, we see him in his humanity. We see that he was a real human being who had real emotions, who really struggled at times because he has, had the same flesh we do, the same mind, the same, uh, the same outer shell. The second, thing, the second reason Jesus' death is presented so differently is he was facing a different kind of death than anybody else had ever faced before or ever would after. And I know lots of people have been martyred and and even many thousands have been crucified. And that's an awful way to die. It has to be. But Jesus was facing more than a whip, more than nails through his hands and feet, more than being stretched out and, and dying of exposure or suffocation slowly over the course of hours. As bad as that was, the humiliation of it, the pain of it, the anguish, that's really not the worst of what Jesus was facing. And I, I, I don't understand it completely, so I definitely won't be able to explain it adequately, but we'll talk some about that today and more in depth in a couple of weeks. But just understand, Jesus was going to experience something no one else ever would on this earth. The third thing, 
we need to understand is God knew, and that's why he inspired this story to be written in his scriptures. God knew that all of us face moments of truth in our lives. All of us face moments when there are no good options, moments when we are terrified and we don't know what to do. And God put this story in the scriptures. He wanted us to know what his son was going through so that he would know there's someone who understands. There's someone who identifies. And even more importantly, there is a way to overcome. Like the choir just sang, there is a way to overcome all of that. So let's take a look at the story of Gethsemane. The word Gethsemane means olive press. It takes place in an olive garden. Y'all, not the Italian restaurant, you understand. An olive grove. Y'all look with me at Mark 14, verse 32. They went to a place called Gethsemane, and Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. He said to them, stay here and keep watch. Now, I should pause and just remind you, they have just come from the upper room where Jesus and his disciples had that Passover meal that turned into something different that was his last supper with them. And he's just shared with them all that is going to happen. And now he takes them to this olive grove, 11 out of the 12. Judas has already left. And he takes Peter, James, and John further into the garden with him. They've always had special privileges in the apostolic band, and now they're with him uh, to the end. So verse 35 says, going a little farther... He fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Simon, he said to Peter, are you asleep? Couldn't you keep watch for one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Once more, he went away and prayed the same thing. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. They did not know what to say to him. Returning the third time, he said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Enough. The hour has come. Look, the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise. Let's go. Here comes my betrayer. Just as he was speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, appeared. With him was a crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him and lead him away under guard. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Rabbi, and kissed him. The men seized Jesus and arrested him. Then one of those standing near drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Am I leading a rebellion, Jesus said, that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I was with you teaching in the temple courts, and you did not arrest me, but the scriptures must be fulfilled. Then everyone deserted him and fled. A young man wearing nothing but a linen garment was following Jesus. When they seized him, he fled naked, leaving his garment behind. Now, this is one of four times this story is told in the four Gospels. So all four Gospel writers give their own perspective of the story, and so there are different details in each one. They don't contradict, but they, they supplement each other. So I'm going to share some things that, that are in the Scriptures that aren't here in Mark, but they are in Matthew or Luke or John. And we always focus, I'm sure this story is familiar to any of you who've ever read the Bible or been in church but, but we focus on Jesus, and rightly so, in this story. What I want to do tonight, what I want to do today first, before we get to Jesus, is I want to look at three other people who had a moment of truth 
in that place, in that olive grove that day, because we can identify with each one of them. We can sympathize, we can identify, we can understand what they were going through, and they have something to teach us as well. So the first person we're going to look at is Judas. Judas, the man who that night committed the most heinous act that's ever been committed, did the most notorious deed, the most nefarious thing that's ever been done. He sold the Son of God. And at the start of this story, Judas has already decided what he's going to do. He's already chosen to call what is absolutely wrong, right. And you can, you can think as hard as you can. It's hard to get into somebody's mind and understand what motivates them. Let's attempt to do that right now. I know that's kind of a dangerous thing to do. But let's try to understand where Judas was coming from. This was a man who spent three years with Jesus, who saw his miracles, who experienced his love, and yet at the end sold him out. Why? What we know about Judas is that he was a man who loved money. And that makes him uh, similar to many of us, if not all of us. We know that because we're told that he was the, the treasurer of the group of the apostles. He carried the money bag, and he used to dip into that bag uh, to enrich himself from time to time. We know that he was a man of ambition. He wanted something great for himself. And we can imagine that he was drawn to Jesus just like everybody else was because he was such a dynamic speaker, because there was something different about him. He obviously had miracle power. And I imagine all of the the disciples and many others thought, I'm going to follow Jesus for a while and it's going to be tough for now, but soon it will pay, soon it will be good, soon we will have glory and power and honor and riches. But Judas, I think, more than any other was motivated by that. And he really did look forward to the day when he would sit at the right hand of the king of the earth and and gain all the privileges that accrue to that position. And then came that night. We know that crucial night was the night when Jesus and his disciples were staying at Bethany, in Bethany at at, uh, Lazarus's house, and Mary and Martha, his sisters, were there. And Mary got up and anointed Jesus with some very expensive perfume. This was just a couple of nights before this one. Most expensive thing she owned, most likely. Extravagant, what she just did. And Judas expected Jesus to feel like he felt. What a waste. How can you waste such valuable stuff? But Jesus instead thanked her and praised her for this extravagant gift of love and worship. And I think right then, something snapped in Judas's head. We know that right after that, he went to the priest and said, I can give you Jesus. I can show you where he is. But I think in his mind, his motivation was, listen, this guy obviously doesn't care a thing about money or power or ambition. I've followed this guy for three years, and it's going to turn out to have been for nothing. He deceived me. He led me astray. I really thought that following him would be my ticket. And I've wasted the last three years of my life, and I've wasted all this sacrifice. Well, I'm nobody's fool, and I am not going to come away from this with nothing. And what did he come away with? The price for betrayal was 30 pieces of silver, enough to buy a field. Not a a small amount, but 30 pieces of silver. Picture him there while Jesus is out here in the garden praying. Picture him in that temple far away, two miles away in the temple courts, waiting for the gang of thugs that will join him. The priests have rounded up their own temple guard, that the Romans let them keep, along with any other uh, riffraff who wants to make a quick buck by carrying a thub and doing a little damage. 
Picture him as he leads them through the streets, the narrow streets of Jerusalem and through the gates and out into the countryside where there are Israelites everywhere camped on the sides of hills and in barns and everywhere they can find shelter and and even no shelter at all, waiting for the rest of the Passover festival. Hundreds of thousands of people that don't usually live there. That's why, that's why the priests need Judas. They can't arrest Jesus in broad daylight for fear of starting a, a riot, but They don't know where he is. And remember, if you've grown up in the country and there's not streetlights everywhere, it is dark, dark, dark. And picture them walking through that darkness. Picture the flickering lights of those torches and the sound of those flames. Hear the the rough men behind you as they're walking and swapping dirty jokes and and bragging about what they're going to do to those Galileans when they catch them and getting into little arguments amongst themselves. Get inside the head of Judas as he debates his own conscience and says, I know this isn't a nice thing to do. I know that, I know that people are going to hate me, but, but this is what I need to do. This is what I must do. No one else is going to look out for me. Obviously, Jesus isn't looking out for me. I've got to take care of myself. This is what I have to do. And we know that he walked up to Jesus and he kissed him on his cheek and he called him rabbi, he called him teacher. And the soldiers took him And we know that immediately Judas knew he'd done the wrong thing. Immediately all those rationalizations, all that that sales, sales job he had done on himself vanished and he recognized the gravity of what he had just done. And not long after, he took his own life. But here's what Judas has in common with us. We've all got a Judas heart. We do. We've all got this ability to talk ourselves into what we know is wrong. And I know, I know that I should be patient with her, but doggone it, she's, she's, she's crossed my wires one too many times and she's going to get it from me. She's going to hear about it from me. And I know, I know I'm supposed to forgive him and I know that's what the Bible says, but, but not when I've been hurt this way, not when I've been disrespected the way he just did. Surely even God would understand if I go on hating him the way I do. And I know I'm supposed to be true to my wife, but she honestly hasn't been much of a wife to me. And, and, and I mean, anybody would understand if I meet my own needs for once. And they don't pay me enough at that company. And, and I deserve better. And, and so no one could judge me for taking a little for myself. And I know people think it's wrong to smoke that or to drink that or to take that or to look at that on the computer, but they don't understand my needs and what this does for me and how this keeps me going. So it's for me and it's okay. We all do this. Maybe not all the things I just mentioned, hopefully not all, but all of us have that Judas heart that's able to convince ourselves that wrong is right. In the moment, we can sell ourselves on the worst decisions of all. And at the time, isn't it true, because you've been there, isn't it true that even while you're making that decision, you know it's the wrong thing to do? Even then, you know, I'm going to regret this. I'm going to pay for this someday. And you do it anyway. We'll get back to that in a moment. I want to talk secondly about Peter. He also had a moment of truth that night. Simon Peter, the best of all the disciples in his own mind, he was sure he was committed to the Lord more than anybody else. And he was the exact opposite of Judas. Whereas Judas Judas that night was determined to do wrong, Peter was dead set on doing right. He had already said, Lord, I will give my life for you. And he was ready to back up those words, or at least he thought he was. 
And then circumstances punched him right in the mouth, and he found out how unready he really was. Do you know it's interesting that, that Jesus, in, in verse 37, calls him Simon? You know where that name comes from, right? That's, that's his actual given name. His mom and dad called him Simon out of the womb. Jesus was the one who named him Peter. Peter, that name means rock. Peter must have loved that name. But now Jesus goes back to his given name. Why? And I don't know. This is just my opinion. This is just my speculation. But my guess is that Jesus looks at him and says, you know, you're not really much like a rock right now. Here I am, all I really need from you. All you can really do for me is to just walk through this time with me. Have you ever been there where you're struggling with something? Maybe something as terrible as losing a loved one. Maybe something as, as trivial as a stomach virus. And you, you feel all alone in your suffering. And then a trusted friend or, or a family member comes along and just sits with you. And they don't say anything. They don't try to explain it. They sure don't go, well, this is God's will. No, they just sit there, and somehow that makes it better. Have you ever experienced that? And that's all Jesus wanted. He brought those three closest friends of his and said, just keep watch with me. That's all. And he goes and he finds Peter can't even do that. Can't even stay awake with his closest best friend, his, his Messiah, supposedly. He says, Simon, what are you doing? Why are you asleep? For that matter, why is Peter singled out in the book of Mark? Why is only he mentioned? It's not that way in the other Gospels. And here's my theory, and it's just a theory. Don't take this to the bank. Don't get into a fight over it. But this is my theory. The ancients, ancient Christians, the original Christians, believed that Mark was written by a guy named John Mark. We believe that. But that he got his information straight from the apostle Peter that the two of them did missionary work together. And along the course of that time, Peter told him the whole story of Jesus from beginning to end, and Mark wrote it down, and that's where he got his information. And if that's true, then maybe, maybe the reason in the story is told this way is because that's how Peter remembers it. And maybe Jesus did talk to John and to James, but Peter didn't hear that. All he heard was that accusatory word, Simon, why are you asleep? Notice also down in verse 47, it says that one of them drew a sword and, and struck the, the high priest's servant. We know from the other Gospels that was Peter. Why isn't it mentioned here in Mark? He mentioned him earlier. Why not here? And if I'm right about the first thing, I think I'm right about the second thing. I think Peter's told, told Mark, okay, you know I was the one that drew that sword, but that makes me sound really brave. And I don't, I don't want to sound brave. I wasn't brave that night. So don't put my name in there. Don't give people the wrong impression. Again, just my theory. The truth is about Peter, this was the worst night of his life, and it was about to get far worse. This is just a foretaste of what Peter was about to do and experience. And what about that random weird story about this guy, this young man wrapped in linen who runs away naked? Where did that come from? What is that about? There's a long, long, uh, an old, old tradition. A lot of people believe that that's actually about John Mark himself, the guy who wrote the gospel, that he was a teenager at the time and, and that uh, he was with the disciples in the upper room. It may have been his own family's house where they were meeting and, and that late at night he decided to follow after them. Maybe he had gone to bed already and, and wrapped himself just in something simple to follow the disciples out to the Garden of Gethsemane. And then when suddenly here comes that arresting band, that mob of soldiers, he thinks, I didn't sign on for this. And when someone grabs him, he heads, he heads for safety. 
And if so, this is sort of like an artist painting his own face onto the face of someone in the crowd in one of his paintings. But in this case, it's not a way of bragging. It's a way of saying, I was there and I abandoned him too. And even if this is not John Mark's testimony about himself, it's someone's story. Someone abandoned Jesus. Actually, all of them, all of them did. And Peter Peter identifies with us and we with him. You know why? Because all of us are like Peter at times. There are times when we have the best of intentions. Our hearts are so pure. We want to do good things. We're determined to set the world on fire for God. We're determined to set things right, to to stand up for truth and justice. I am going to share the gospel with that person who I've known a long time, who's not a believer. Today's the day I'm going to do it. And then we get there and we chicken out and we change the subject. I am going to give some generous gift. In fact, I'm going to start giving every time I get paid. I'm going to do it. I really am. And then we come up with some reason why we can't. I'm going to serve. Everybody else is using their talents and their gifts to glorify God. Well, I'm going to devote myself to ministry. I'm going to do it. But there's always a reason not to. It's hard enough just to get to church, much less offer God something more than your posterior in a pew. We can always come up with reasons not to. Just like Jesus said to Peter, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Can I just say that is not the happiest of all Bible verses? I hope you don't have that on a bumper sticker on the back of your car. I sure hope it's not on your refrigerator, but it's true. So does that mean, does that mean that we're hopeless, that we'll never do right, that we'll never overcome our our darkest temptations and uh, our weakest moments? We'll get back to that in a moment too. The third guy I want to tell you about is named Malchus. And you didn't see that name in the book of Mark, but you do in John, because that's the actual name. We only know it because of John. That's the actual name of the servant of the high priest who got his ear cut off by Peter. He's the slave of Caiaphas, the high priest. And here's my theory on why he's there. Caiaphas knew there was another time when a band of soldiers sent by the religious leaders was sent to arrest Jesus and they came back empty-handed, not because Jesus bamboozled them or or beat them up or ran away, but because they were just so dazzled by his speaking. They came back and said, we've never heard anybody talk like that. We couldn't arrest him. And I think Caiaphas sent Malchus because he was his most trusted man. And he said, listen, you make sure they come back with that Nazarene in chains. Malchus was there for insurance, I think. And it's not surprising that he got his ear cut off. It really isn't. You you have to imagine if you're going to go ambush someone in the dark, there's a chance they're going to come out swinging. The surprise is what happened after the sword came out. Jesus, it's not told in this gospel, but in the others, Jesus gets down and picks up that bloody appendage out of the dirt and reattaches it. It's the only record we have in Scripture of a miracle like that, of of an amputation being reversed. That's, That's quite a miracle. And think about what it was. The miracle wasn't just that Jesus did it. It was that he did it for someone who came to put him to death. Think about that for a moment. There's there's no more uh, clear image of grace in Scripture than that. Here's the guy who came to put me in chains so I could be put to death, and I'm going to heal him right now. Would you have done that? I wouldn't have. If I had the power of Jesus, I, I tell you, I've thought about this before, I might have grabbed that ear and stuck it right in the middle of his forehead just so he'd look like an idiot for the rest of his life. 
you know, turn him into a chicken and say, how do you like that? Jesus, isn't it good that I'm not the son of God? Jesus said, here's my chance to show love to one of my children, no matter what he wants to do to me. We don't know what happened to Malchus after this. He's never mentioned again in Scripture. There are those who believe that the reason John mentions his name is that he later became a believer, and he's sort of writing that into his story to say, hey, those of you who know Malchus, this is his story. This is how he got saved. I hope that's true, but we don't know. You and I may, may think, well, surely he became a believer after what Jesus did for him, but no, that's not necessarily the case. We'll have to wait to heaven to see. I sure hope I find him there. Here's the thing with Malchus, though, and here's, here's where we identify with him. Like Malchus, all of us at some point in our lives ran into the unexpected grace of God that we didn't know was there, that no one ever told us about until that moment. And, and a lot of us, it was like with Malchus, we, we had it all. We had what we thought was life. We had a dream, an agenda, a plan, and we thought we knew what life was all about. And then suddenly, suddenly life blindsided us and we reached the end of our rope. And at the end of our rope, Jesus was waiting for us there. And we saw for the first time, totally against our expectations, that, that our God is not a God who wants people who are smooth and sharp and well put together and, and have everything arranged perfectly. No, he's looking for people who are silly and stupid and, and failures left and right and who don't know what to do next. And at that moment when we saw that grace, many of us, many of us, hopefully all of us in this room, we said, you know, everything I've thought life was all about, I'm going to chuck it now because I'm giving it all to him. And that was our moment of salvation. But many others have come to that point and turned away. And many others have never even been to that point yet because no one has shared with them the grace of God. So three people in this story, three people who had a moment of truth that night, two of them made devastatingly awful decisions, decisions you can't take back or make up for. The third, we don't know what he decided after he encountered Jesus. But what about us? Because all of us at some point are going to face a moment of truth. You, you will from time to time through life come to that point or that moment of terror where you don't know what to do. Or maybe you know what you're supposed to do and you just don't think you have the strength to do it. Where you face an impossible situation. What does this story tell us? What, 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 what advice is there? Could, should I stand up here and tell you try really, really hard to do good? That doesn't work. I've failed at that all the time. Should I tell you, be more committed to God? Good luck. Doesn't work either. Should I tell you, just be more religious. If you're here every Sunday, um, then, then you'll always get it right. You know, I'd love for you to be here every Sunday, but I can't oversell that. Being in church doesn't make you righteous. The most religious people in the world at the time were the ones who hired that mob to arrest Jesus. Keep that in mind. So it's not religion on its own. Let's look at the fourth man who had a moment of truth that night. The guy we started off, starting, started off talking about, and that's Jesus. Jesus comes to this place called Gethsemane. And a lot of people, a lot of Christians, including a lot of preachers, sort of want to gloss over this story because it presents our Lord in a light that doesn't make us feel comfortable. We want him always to be calm. We want him to always seem above it all. But Jesus was a man. He was fully God, but he was also fully 
man. He had human needs and aspirations. There was a, a movie, some of you will remember, many of you are not old enough yet, but um, 1988, Martin Scorsese uh, produced a movie called The Last Temptation of Christ. I was a senior in high school at the time. I remember this big furor, uh, this big controversy over this movie. Um, there was a scene in the movie. None of us had seen it. None of the, no Christian I knew watched that movie, but we had heard that there was a scene in the movie where Jesus fantasizes about what it would be like to get married to Mary Magdalene of all people and to raise a family and to never go to the cross. And so Christians threw a fit. They said, this is blasphemy. And there was, there were protests and there were calls for censorship. And, um, you know, honestly, it was a terrible strategy because as it turned out, they just ended up giving the movie a lot of free publicity. Uh, but a few years ago, I actually saw that movie. It, it came on some cable channel that I had at the time. And I thought, well, I might as well see what it's like. And I have to tell you, I, I'm a, I enjoy movies, but that's a, that's a lousy movie. I mean, it, it really stinks. And Martin Scorsese is a talented filmmaker. I won't take it away from him. He's got Oscars to prove it, but he, he created a dud in that movie. And I'm not just talking theologically. But the idea that bothered so many people back then, the idea that Jesus really wanted to walk away from the cross, that he really wanted to have a normal life like you and me, to, to get away, to, to just live in some small town and, and raise children and, and have a carpentry shop and, and, and live a long, fruitful life. That's real. I mean, it doesn't say it in that detail here, but Jesus' prayer in Gethsemane is not play acting. It's real. Jesus is really calling on his Father and saying, Lord, find me some way out of this. I don't want this. His tears are real. His sweat is real. He is in anguish for what he is about to endure. And just like any one of us, he doesn't want to go through with it. And so he takes it to his father. He calls him Abba. He, he had tried to teach the disciples to use that word. It's an Aramaic word. basically means daddy. He was the first person in history to have the audacity to call God that because he knew his father. He says, Father, if it's possible, take this cup from me. That, that's interesting language. It's actually Old Testament language. In, in the Old Testament, the cup usually represented the wrath of God. Picture an enormous chalice full of acid or, or, or fire or something awful. It represents the settled wrath of God against sin. Basically, it is the force that exists in God that will someday wipe out all evil so that we can have a world that is perfect. And we're thankful that it exists. But at that moment in time, that wrath was destined for you and me. We deserved it. And Jesus looked at it and said, the only way to make sure that people don't get destroyed by that wrath is for me to drink it down myself. Take it into myself as if I were the sinful one. None of us would want to do that. Most of you can't even take medicine without, you know, a little spoonful of sugar, Right? Jesus, Jesus was going to have to drink it all for us that night. And that meant, that meant more than pain. That meant more than humiliation. That meant more than, than being uh, ripped away from his family and friends. That meant, that meant eternal separation from God. Hell itself on earth, wrapped into a few hours on a cross. I don't know how that's possible. That Jesus could have served the eternal sentence of every human being who has ever lived in the span of six hours, but that's what he was facing. Is it any wonder he cried out, Father, if it's possible, take this cup from me. 
And he prayed it hours after hours. And then he prayed that beautiful sentence, the sentence that saves our soul. Not my will, but yours be done. Lord, this is what I want. I'm sharing with you what I want because I know you're a loving father. But I'm also going to do whatever you tell me, even if you don't give me what I want. Not my will, but yours be done. And then he got up. And he marched over to that mob seeking his life. Everybody else, every, every human being, including Jesus, is equipped with a fight or flight response, right? In a situation like that, we'd either run as fast as we could or we'd get our dukes ready and, and, and start fighting. And Jesus could outfight anybody with the power of Almighty God in his hands. Jesus didn't either. He didn't run. He didn't fight. And that saved our souls. So what does this tell us? When we face a moment of truth, what does the story of Jesus in Gethsemane tell us? It tells us, number one, like we said at the beginning, God understands. When you're struggling, when you're suffering, don't be ashamed of your tears. Don't be afraid to go to him. In fact, in fact, that's what he wants us to do. God understands why it's so hard for us to do right. God understands why it's so difficult for us to connect with him in worship. God understands why we're so afraid to share our faith, why we're so selfish that we don't want to give, why we're so um, lazy that we don't want to serve. God understands. Secondly, and more importantly, it, it shows us that he died for failures. He didn't die for people who have it all together. He didn't die for people who are righteous. Um, side note, there aren't any. He died for people who've, who failed in small ways and spectacular ways, people who've, who've, who've done scandalous things and people who've told little white lies. He, he died for every single one of us so that the next time you sin or, or when you feel like a failure, and as you're listening to this sermon and you're thinking about a, a time in the past when you faced a moment of truth and you, like Judas or like Peter, chose wrong, you, you can know that he says, yeah, that's why I died, <laughs> knowing that you would do that kind of thing, knowing that you'd need a way to be saved. And here's, here's my thing. I, I can't prove this by anything else other than the revealed character of God in Scripture, but I believe this with every fiber of my being. Even Judas, even Judas, if he would have, like Peter, turned back to Jesus and come to him and said, Lord, I've done a terrible thing to you. Is there any way you can forgive me? He would have been forgiven. He would have been restored. Instead, he ended up hanging from a rope. And what killed Judas was he just couldn't believe in the grace of God. Just couldn't accept that God could love him that much. Don't make that same mistake, whatever you've done. Don't, don't assume, don't, don't fall prey to that human prideful response that says, if I can't do it myself, it can't be done. Third thing this teaches us. The next time we face a moment of truth, the next time you don't know what to do or the next time you know what to do but you don't think you have the strength, don't make the mistake of Judas and say, I'm going to do the wrong thing because it's easier. Don't make the mistake of Peter and say, I can do it because I'm good. I'm more devoted than anybody. Look at me. But instead, do what Jesus did. and Get down on your knees before the Father and just say, I can't do this. I need you, Lord. 
And there are stories all across this room, I promise you, of people who've come to the darkest moment and cried out to God and God gave them the strength to do amazing things. There are stories in this room of people who've overcome addictions, people who've transformed the way they talk to their wife or to their children, who've, who've responded differently to a, an angry boss or to a, a lost person who they used to despise and now they end up leading them to Christ. There are stories in this room and all across the world of people who do miraculous things because all of a sudden they say, you know what? It's not about me. My God's got the power. And they go to him in prayer. The same power it took for Jesus to go joyfully to the cross is the same power that can deliver you from whatever you're facing. And here's the thing about Jesus. Jesus had this amazing foreknowledge. He knew that his moment of truth was coming. He knew he saw this coming a mile away. You and I don't have that kind of foreknowledge. We don't know when a moment of truth is going to arrive. It could be today. It could be next week. It could be next year. We don't know. So wouldn't it be smart in light of that? Wouldn't it be the wise thing to do to start off every day by saying, Lord, I don't know what today is going to bring. You do. So whatever it brings, give me the wisdom to choose the right path. Give me the courage to do what's right. Give me the boldness to speak the words that need to be spoken. Give me the humility to make sure it's not about me. Lord, change my heart and, and renew me so that I can, I can make the right decision in the key moments. Wouldn't that be a wise way to start every day? And in fact, wouldn't it be a wise thing to do right now? To set your, your heart on him and to get your mind right at the beginning of a week that you don't know what that week's going to bring. 